New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The brain is exquisitely sensitive and responsive to its inner and outer environment. New neural pathways and new brain cells are continuously forming and at the same time, the brain is constantly pruning unused connections. In other words, the brain is constantly under construction. Our guest today says taking care of our brains includes refraining from brain-damaging foods, environmental toxins, emotional destructive forces, as well as ignorant and inaccurate theories about brain health. He reminds us that the brain is under sustained assault from many directions, so it's no wonder there is an epidemic of cognitive decline in today's world. Today, we'll learn how to protect ourselves as we navigate the neurotoxic forces that are currently pitched against everyone on the planet. The good news is the brain has a great capacity for healing and growth. Today, we'll learn how to protect our brain with our guest, Dr. Brant Courtright. Brant Courtright is a professor emeritus with the California Institute of Integral Studies and is a clinical psychologist as well as a featured speaker at conferences and corporate gatherings on the topic of peak brain performance, cognitive enhancement, and the prevention of cognitive decline, anxiety, and depression. He sees psychotherapy clients in his San Francisco office and is the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. Join us for the next hour as we explore healthy brain science with our guest, Dr. Brandt Corbright. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Brent, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Justine. Oh, it's great. It's great to sit down with you again. It's been a while. I'd like to first start off with why have mental disorders skyrocketed in the last 50 years? Great question. Um, most people know that they've increased, but they don't realize the extent to which they've increased. Um, and it's particularly, um, it's the young people who are getting the brunt of this, even more than um, adults. Um, childhood rates of depression are five to eight times what they were in the 1960s. 
And childhood rates of anxiety are eight times what they were in the 1960s. And that's not better testing. That's using the exact same standardized tests as was used back then. One quarter of American women between 25 and 45 are taking an antidepressant. It's, it's huge. I know preschool teachers who are in despair because a third of their classroom is on medication. This isn't even elementary school. This is preschool. So it's an epidemic. The New York Times, an article, you know, the, the United States of anxiety these days. So the big question is why? And many different theories have been proposed, but looking at this from a holistic perspective, I think we can say that there are many levels at which the brain and the self is under assault, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So we are psychophysical beings, right? We have a brain, a physical brain, and we have a psychological existence, a self and a spiritual being. So even sort of to make this even more exact, we exist on these different levels, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And all four of those levels we experience through the brain and through the self. So when we get a dysfunction of the brain or the self, we get symptoms such as anxiety, depression, or cognitive decline. And my own sense is that we are living in a neurotoxic minefield. There are, if you look at Wikipedia, it lists 200 pages of lists of neurotoxins, over 6,000 neurotoxins that are in the environment that have never been there before. Some of these we know about and are commonly known, like mercury, um, lead, arsenic, these things, plastics of various kinds. Plastics are hormone disruptors, um, endocrine disruptors, and these create havoc in the brain. Pretty much everybody on the planet has measurable levels of microplastics in their bloodstream, phthalates. Another example is glyphosate, a pesticide, the most widely used pesticide in the world. 300 million pounds of it used in the United States alone every year. Um, glyphosate, which is in most foods these days and most commercial meats, and is also used massively in China and India and Brazil and other countries, is an antibiotic. And so one thing it does is it wipes out our microbiome, and we can get into some of the disastrous effects of that later on. But what it also does is it opens up the tight junctions of the intestines. Now, the tight junctions are what keeps out the bad stuff and lets in the good stuff. And when the tight junctions open up, it lets in all kinds of toxins into the body. This creates inflammation, and inflammation, as we know, is behind every major chronic illness. Now, it turns out that the tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier operate with the same signaling molecules. And so when glyphosate opens up the tight junctions of the intestines, it also opens up the tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier and lets in neurotoxins into the brain, which also creates inflammation and toxicity in the brain. 
I, I want to say something about glyphosate because I have done an interview with someone else uh, about that specific topic, and she's someone who has worked with children. And I, I'm just amazed at, uh, she said when she discovered, like her, she has three youngsters, and one had autism, another had ADHD, or whatever it's called, and, you know, I mean, and she thought, this never came up 30 years ago. Why is it here now? And she, by changing their diet, she said that even if something says it's organic, it still has glyphosate in it because the glyphosate is now in the seeds itself, that the seeds that the farmers are buying have have it and and so it's really hard to avoid it but yeah. it yeah, so I just wanted to mention that yeah that's right um UCSF did a study a few years back and found measurable levels of glyphosate in 93% of Americans so even if you eat totally organically some of that organic food is going to be contaminated and commercial meats are loaded with it because they give them genetically modified feed grain which is just has tons of glyphosate in it um, it's very difficult to avoid but if you do eat purely organically you can avoid at least 80 percent of it if you live in the midwest or the south there they use so much of it that it's in the dust it's in the mm. rain it's in the rain mm. it's, it, it's yeah. everywhere yeah. Um, taking glycine three grams a day, twice a day for several for a couple of weeks is one way to detox from glyphosate. So, glyphosate is you know if you, if you go out to eat and you just have bread, you're going to get some glyphosate unless it's organic grain that's used because they use it just to desiccate wheat and when they harvest wheat, so it is everywhere. There's there's smog. You know the the very small molecules in smog, these 2.5 micron particles and smaller, they are so small that they are absorbed by the lungs, through the lung barrier into the bloodstream, and they also cross the blood-brain barrier. And when they get into the brain, these little particles act like little wrecking balls with the very mm. delicate neurons of the brain. And so some people think, since 90% of the world's population lives in smoggy air, that up to 30% of Alzheimer's can be attributed simply to smog. One thing they found in babies in Mexico City, which is highly polluted, is they began to find amyloid plaque in the brains of one-year-old babies. That's the, um, that's the same amyloid plaque that we find in Alzheimer's. Um, they didn't think it was possible for babies to develop amyloid, but in a highly polluted environment, you can. So I think it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm. You know, you don't notice one or two or even 20 or 30, mm -hmm. but after 100 or 200, you begin to falter and you begin to develop symptoms. So let me ask you, uh, a lot of um, medical practitioners, you know, doctors, are prescribing pharmaceuticals. Uh, they're using medication to help with this, to help with uh, anxiety or cognitive decline or, or depression, you know, antidepressants. So how effective are they in 
combating these uh, different maladies like anxiety and depression? I think that's a really important question to look at because these medications are very good at suppressing symptoms, but they're completely useless when it comes to healing the brain. Medication like anti-anxiety medications, say benzodiazepines, clonopin, I mean, it goes on and on. There's, it's hugely, uh, widely prescribed. Um, antidepressants, um, $15 billion a year industry. Anti-Alzheimer's drugs, none of them do anything more than postpone symptoms for a few months. And there's even some evidence to show that in the long run, they actually speed up cognitive decline. Sometimes these medications can be a lifesaver. I'm not anti-medication entirely. I think sometimes they can be wonderful. However, my own opinion is that they are widely over-prescribed. Well, are you saying that, like, if there's an emergency situation, let's say, for example, when I was in college, I had a breakdown. I was under tremendous stress. I was commuting to college. I had a young young toddler at home. My marriage was falling apart. And I was midwifing my mother-in-law through her dying. I, I just had a breakdown at, at one point, and so there was a doctor who I got turned into <laughs> to the power. Say they wanted me to see a psychiatrist before I went back to class, and and he prescribed some medication. I don't know if it, it wasn't it was too early for Valium. I don't know what it was, but it was like that. That got me through a couple of weeks. That got me through it. It. it it calmed my system down, and then I was able to go off of that, and I was able to then start to function. So that's where it can help, yes. but it's not like long-term is what you're saying. Exactly. I want to I wanna remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Brant Courtright, and he's the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Brant Courtright, and I'd like to give you his website if you want to be in touch with him and find out what his activities are. You can go to his website, BrantCourtright.com, and he spells his name B-R-A-N-T. Courtright is C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T, BrantCourtright.com, and he's the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and cognitive decline. 
And that's what we're talking about. We were just talking about how medications temporarily might be of help, but in the long term, they may not be so helpful. Is that what you're saying? Is that what your research shows? That's right. That's right. That that they can be a lifesaver in times of emergency. For anxiety, like you're talking about, sometimes for depression. Um, but the problem is that the traditional medical model tends to see this as simply a biological illness, which requires lifelong medication. And so many people start and are told that they need this medication for the rest of their lives. Now, I was um, trained as a psychologist, and so we were always taught that, you know, it's a chicken and egg question. Is depression, for example, a biological illness, or is it a result of psychologically um, unskillful behavior that then leads to the brain changes we see in depression? And for a long time, this chicken and egg thing, I came down on the side of it was psychologically, sometimes physical, but most of the time I thought it was a psychological problem. That as that got fixed, the brain got fixed. And I've come to think that it's really, it's a chicken and egg thing. That it's both psychological and it's also involved in our brain health. And that there is a kind of weakening of the brain that is happening now that is resulting in this epidemic of anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. And so I've called this weakened brain syndrome. And the problem with medication is that it doesn't really heal or strengthen the brain. It simply suppresses symptoms for a period of time. And so I've been really working to see what can we do to really heal the brain, to strengthen the brain. Because as you talked about at the beginning intro, the brain is always in movement. The brain is this living, moving, growing organism. You know, we tend to think of the, the brain as a, like a computer, but that's a very bad analogy because the brain is not like a static computer chip. It's not a dead thing. It's, it's always in motion, always growing, always moving. Every new experience changes the brain. Everything we learn new changes the brain. And so for a long time, we've known about neuroplasticity and the importance of this brain making new connections all the time. But in the past 20 years or so, there's been a more recent discovery of neurogenesis. The brain not only makes new connections, but it makes new brain cells themselves. And at first, they didn't understand the significance of this, but then they realized that actually our rate of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity is the most important biomarker for brain health that most people have never heard of. So they've done many experiments with different kinds of mammals, for example, monkeys, um, mice, where they increase the neurogenic rate by five times. And when they do that, they get like super mice or super monkeys, almost. They get mice or monkeys that learn faster, that are smarter, figure things out faster, that are emotionally robust and protected against anxiety, stress, and depression. And the same thing can happen with human beings. We can increase our neurogenic rate. So it turns out that our rate, the, the rate at which the brain is growing and moving 
determines whether or not we're feeling anxious, depressed, and the state of our cognition. And so to increase our neurogenic rate and to get the brain up to peak performance is really what the book is about. And as that happens, anxiety diminishes, depression lowers, and cognition is enhanced. Oh, great. That's good news. And now, uh, what about the how? I know that you state that anxiety and stress actually can shrink the brain, make it actually physically smaller. That's right. Uh, That's so, right. Uh, so if, if you're saying the rate of neurogenesis can, is, is really important to up that rate, um, tell us how. how. How do we do that? Good what's, question. What's the formula? <laughs> I'm coming at this from a holistic perspective. Body, heart, mind, spirit. There are, at all levels, the brain's capacity for neurogenesis and neuroplasticity can be enhanced. But there's a particularly big place for diet in this, because the foods we take in have an enormous impact on the quality of our brain and on our neurogenic rate. There are things we can take, things we can eat, things like the standard American diet, for example, is almost designed to slow down our neurogenic rate. So in the book, I go into what I call the four pillars of the healthy brain diet. And the four pillars are neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. And we can unpack each of these a little bit. And I think that there's a, there's a healing phase and then there's a maintenance phase where then you can back off of this and it's no longer as intensely neurogenic. It no longer needs to be ketogenic, but is more low-carb, not as anti-inflammatory, but still anti-inflammatory and still gut-friendly. So the first one is neurogenic. There are about 30 or 40 different nutrients that can dramatically increase our rate of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. Probably the single most important nutrient for anybody to take is omega-3 fatty acids. So omega-3 fatty acids are composed of ALA, EPA, and DHA. ALA we don't need to worry about so much. EPA is a very strong anti-inflammatory and very good to take. And DHA is the fundamental building block of the brain. The brain is made up of about 60% fat. And of that, a third to a half of it is DHA. So most people want to be taking three or four grams of omega-3s every day. And if your inflammatory levels are low, then you want a one-to-one -one ratio of EPA to DHA. If your inflammatory levels are high, and most people in America's are, then you want a two-to-one ratio of EPA to DHA. They did an experiment where they gave monkeys, baby monkeys, a high omega-3 diet and another group a low omega-3 diet. And the low omega-3 diet monkeys' brains, when they looked at them later, were very simple, undifferentiated brains. But the high omega-3 diet monkey brains were very highly complex, richly differentiated brains, almost like humans. 
Omega-3s are the fundamental building block and anti-inflammatory we can take for the brain. Christine Thuray, a neuroscientist at the University of London, increased neurogenesis by 40% simply by adding omega-3s to the diet. I just want to ask you the question, you know, for a while it was suggested that we cut fats out of our diet. Can you just make a comment about good fats and bad fats? Good. Excellent. Um, let me finish up the neurogenic piece and move into the next okay, piece, which I'm has sorry. to do totally yeah. do with fats. Yeah, 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 that's a good segue. So there are many other compounds like hesperidin, luteolin, apigenin, things that are like miracle grow for the brain that I think it's very helpful for people to take. And the book goes into some detail with this. I just want to say that the appendix in your book has all of this information. So, so listeners, don't worry about having to write all this down. Uh, it's all in the book, Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. It's all right there. So this is just giving us a bit of an overview and encouragement. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for that. Um, so the second pillar, the ketogenic part, you're right. Most people have been told fats are bad, and we're finally getting over this, but the message is still out there, and it, the message is still kind of ingrained in our brains. It takes a while to kind of detox from these messages. So it turns out that probably most people should be getting most of their calories from healthy fats, not bad unhealthy fats, but good healthy fats. Um, most people have some degree of insulin resistance, and the higher your degree of insulin resistance, the faster your rate of cognitive decline will be, and also the lower your neurogenic rate will be. And so a ketogenic diet is a diet where you take very few calories from carbohydrates, you have moderate protein, and you get most of your calories from healthy fats. So these would be things like, again, omega-3s, monounsaturated fats. Um, a certain amount of saturated fats are good. And we want to not do unhealthy fats, which means fats that are high in omega-6s. So we want a one-to-one -one ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, or maybe a one-to-two ratio. And for tens of thousands of years, that's what we had in the natural environment. But with the current food system, most people have a 1 to 20 ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. And omega-6s are pro-inflammatory. We need a certain amount of them to be able to mount an inflammatory response when we get an infection or a wound. But we want to be able to turn off that inflammatory response because chronic inflammation, again, is behind heart disease, cancers, um, Alzheimer's, um, many chronic illnesses. Does this correlate with the patients? I know that you said something in your book about uh, you were finding that there were some patients who were very fragile and uh, very anxious, and they turned out to be vegan. That's right. And, That's and, right. and it's be I was, so what can you say about that? So I noticed with my students and with my clients who were vegan that they were the most emotionally fragile people around. And that got me interested in looking at diet and realizing that the vegan diet, you get very little saturated fat. You get no animal fats, 
Um, you also don't get a number of uh, brain nutrients, such as B12, which is highly important for the brain. And I also noticed, actually, I was a vegetarian for a number of years, um, and I found myself getting more and more etheric. And when I started eating meat, I kind of came back to earth again. And I think my vegetarian years were not so good for my brain. Um, at this point, I eat most of my calories from fat. I eat a fair amount of um, good grass-fed beef and meat. Um, most of what I eat is actually vegetables, right? We really want to feed our microbiome. We'll, we'll get to that. But um, the bulk of the food is vegetables, should be vegetables and fibrous things. Okay, we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to tell our listeners I'm here with Dr. Brant Cortwright. He's the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Brant Cordwright, and he is the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. And we're talking about the four pillars of um, the healthy brain diet, and you've talked about the neurogenic, the ketogenic. What about the anti-inflammatory? Boy, I mean, uh, inflammatory stuff is just big deal Big deal. And, you know, Brent, we don't really think about the brain as being uh, inflamed, so to speak. We think about joints having inflammatory places in our joints, but we don't often think, I don't often think about it in, as a brain. So let's talk about that. That's right. Um, so having high inflammatory levels in the brain slows neurogenesis and neuroplasticity to a crawl. And when the brain becomes inflamed like this, it makes us more vulnerable, again, to these to anxiety, to depression, to cognitive decline. There is high inflammatory levels in Alzheimer's, in cognitive decline. Depression is now being seen as also an inflammatory process as well. And so about half of physicians are now treating depression with anti-inflammatories as well. But there are natural anti-inflammatories that are, in my opinion, better for the body than things like Advil or things like that. And there is an anti-inflammatory way of eating that naturally brings your inflammatory levels lower. Um, anxiety also is an inflammatory process. Stress and anxiety create chronic inflammation, and chronic inflammation shrinks the brain. Chronic depression shrinks the brain. You can actually, um, the length of time that a person has been depressed is correlated with brain shrinkage, cortical atrophy as well. So we want to make sure that our brain has extinguished these fires of inflammation. 
A good blood test for everybody to do is called a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. When you do your yearly physical, it's a nice thing to do. And if you are over 0.5 for a male or 1.0 for a female, it's very good to start bringing down your inflammatory levels as soon as possible. And you say that you can do this through something you eat rather than having to take medications for it. That's right. And there are a number of compounds that have a powerful anti-inflammatory effect. Things like black cumin seed oil, borage oil, green tea extract, um, blueberries, carnosine, as well as eating, again, healthy fats and lots and lots of fiber, non-carb vegetables. Um, sugar does double duty as both raising our blood sugar to unhealthy levels as well as creating inflammation. So we want to cut out sugar as much as possible. And there are a number of sweeteners which are pretty much as good as sugar, such as monk fruit particularly. Um, some people also really like stevia as well. And then the last pillar um, is gut-friendly. Right? So we've got neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. They did an experiment where they took mice that were bred to be anxious and scared and another group of mice that were genetically bred to be fearless. And they transposed the microbiome of each. They put the microbiome of the fearless mice into the scared mice and the microbiome of the anxious mice into the fearless mice. And the fearless mice became scared and anxious and the anxious mice became unafraid and full of exploratory behavior. So the gut microbiome trumps our genetics. Our gut microbiome actually has an epigenetic effect for stimulating the, the genes that are responsible for our mood. So we want to increase our microbial diversity. You know, everybody knows now that we've got as many or more bacteria in our intestines as we have cells in the body. They used to think it was much more. They've done a recount. Looks like it's about the same, about 40 trillion cells in the body and about 40 trillion bacteria living in our intestines. And of that, in indigenous societies, there are about 20,000 different strains of bacteria. But in the civilized West, with the overuse of antibiotics, most people have about 10,000 or less, sometimes as low as 1,000 or 5,000 which is not good for the immune system, right? 80% of our immune system is in the microbiome, in the intestinal tract. And any ecological system that has low diversity um, is in danger, right? The, the greater the diversity in a, an ecological system, the more robust and strong it is. And it's the same with our intestinal ecological system. We want as diverse a population as possible. And so we want to do things that will heal the tight junctions. You talk about how the gut is like the second brain. It actually has 
certain attributes that the brain has. And so that's why it's so important that we have all this diversity within our microbiome, huh? That's right. And 80% of our neurotransmitters are produced by the microbiome of the gut. So how we feel has a lot to do with the state of our microbiome. And so when we're eating, it's like the doctor who tells the pregnant woman, you're not just eating for one. So here, you're not just eating for yourself, you're eating for 40 trillion. We want to give them lots of good food to survive. And so eating, adding a lot of fiber to your diet is a way of increasing microbial diversity. There are also a number of probiotics that have been shown to reduce anxiety and depression scores by 50%. And so adding these to our diet can have a powerful effect on our mood. There are also some probiotics that have been shown to enhance cognitive function. And these are also worth adding to our diet. So, um, Brandt, let, uh, let's talk about something that we all kind of fear, really. It kind of looms large for most of us, and that's uh, getting Alzheimer's. And you're saying that the research done with Alzheimer's is not really, you know, coming up with, with a medication, let's say a pill. There is no magic pill. So let's talk about Alzheimer's. What is it and uh, how best to, to go for prevention? Good. So it seems more and more clear that this is a lifestyle disease. You know, Alzheimer's rates are five times what they were, again, 50 years ago, and they are increasing astronomically. Um, at this rate, half of 85-year-olds will have Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. It's almost there now, and it'll be there soon. So we need to take good care of our brain, which means we want to make sure that there's not a buildup of amyloid and tau protein in the brain. And there are a number of dietary compounds that have been shown to prevent the buildup of these toxins, as well as other compounds that have been shown to actually clear them out as well. Um, so the standard American diet is kind of like a recipe for Alzheimer's. Bad fats, high sugar, high inflammatory levels, um, this leads to Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is also being called type 3 diabetes. That is, it's a failure of glucose regulation. And so Another important blood test to have at your yearly physical is the hemoglobin A1c, which is like a snapshot of your blood sugar levels over the last three months. Is that a fasting one? It's a fasting or? one. That's right. You need to fast yes. for that. And if your level is, oh, I don't know, 5.2 or so or above, you want to bring it down as soon as possible because, again, each tenth of a point that it goes up is correlated with a higher rate of cognitive decline. So we want to lower our blood sugar as much as possible. That's what the ketogenic diet is good for. The ketogenic diet is also being used in certain Alzheimer trials. So when the brain changes from glucose as its primary source of energy to ketone bodies, then people come back. Cognition comes back online. Using glucose for fuel... Glucose is a very dirty fuel. It produces inflammation, oxidation, a lot of toxic byproducts, but ketone bodies is a very clean fuel. And the word that's being used 
to describe it by uh, ketogenic researchers is neuroprotective. That a ketogenic diet is neuroprotective. And so when the brain is fueled by ketone bodies, it feels like it's operating at a higher level. There's a Harvard researcher, Richard Veach, who just died a while ago, who determined that ketone bodies increase the efficiency of mitochondria in the heart by something like 28%. And the mitochondria of the brain are very similar. So if you can imagine your brain operating at 28% greater efficiency, yeah. you have a sense of what the ketogenic diet can do. It's like you're operating on all cylinders as opposed to just three or four cylinders. Yes, yes. So that's really helpful. And I'm just thinking also, physicians are not taught anything about nutrition. It's, um, so it's no wonder they are pill pushers, so to speak, because that's what they've learned. That's what they've been taught. And say something about that. That's right. There, there was a decision made in medical schools in the 1920s to exclude nutrition from the medical curriculum and to really focus on drugs, promising new drugs. And so most physicians have never had more than a one-hour lecture on nutrition. And it's terrible because a medical degree would line up a person perfectly to really understand what nutrition can do. But unfortunately, most physicians are just very poorly educated in this area. It's extraordinary. Um, so let's go into some of the other ideas. Like I know that you talk about how spirituality is part of it. You mentioned this early, uh, how the different things like proper diet, which we've been talking about, but you've talked about sleep and supplements, but you also talk about spiritual practice. And I, I know that there was one thing you mentioned. You said, if someone meditates for two times a day for 20 minutes, it actually enhances the brain. It actually increases in size, I think, is what you said. Is, did I get that right? That's absolutely right. Um, there's been a whole slew of research recently on the effects of meditation on the brain showing that there are profound effects. And they didn't think that actually as little as 20 minutes a day, twice a day for... Um, for eight weeks would have a measurable effect on the brain, but it actually increases the neurogenic rate quite spectacularly. That's quite fantastic news, isn't it? Uh, really a big motivator to do our practice, our meditative practice. I'm here with Dr. Brandt Courtright, and he's the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Brent Cartwright, and he's the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. And I know that you have talked about how the brain loves cognitive stimulation. So that means that what's good for the brain is lifelong learning, right? That's exactly uh, right. So that's say exactly. something. Tell us about why that's important. So the brain needs stimulation. It needs a kind of optimal stimulation. Too much stimulation and it shuts down. Too little stimulation and it shuts down, right? We want the brain to be this living, growing, moving process. When it gets sluggish, that's when we feel cognitive decline, anxiety, and depression. So we want to be always learning new things. And lifelong learning is the phrase that captures that perfectly. So we want to be exposed to new environments, taking a new way home, traveling, learning, reading, writing, using our brain in multiple ways. Just doing crossword puzzles doesn't do it. Crossword puzzles get you better at doing more crossword puzzles, but that's about it. It doesn't generalize. Video games don't seem to generalize. We need to be using our brain um, interpersonally with other people, talking, listening, engaged. Even if we're just writing email, at least we're writing and we're thinking. So we don't want to be watching more than three hours of TV a day, for example. There, there's, a, there's a measurable cognitive decline, even in young people who watch more than three hours of TV a day. Just passive consumption of media is not good for the brain at a certain point. So that's right, that, that when we have this sort of sweet spot of optimal stimulation, we feel good, right? When, when the brain is in this kind of sweet spot of where we've hit our neurogenic stride, where the brain is this ongoing, moving, living thing, it just feels good to be alive, right? It, it, there's an intrinsic good feeling to just the, the vitality of being alive. And when we're depressed or we're anxious, we're not remembering things well, we have brain fog, it's a sign that our brains become sluggish, slowed down, and we don't have that just vital feeling of well-being. But you, you also, besides diet and, and taking supplements and lifelong learning and everything, uh, psychotherapy can also be of help, too. I mean, it, it kind of goes along with everything. Like, um, I'm just thinking about... in. in um, we have an epidemic right now of loneliness, uh, that people are isolated and people are, um, and it's exacerbated by the pandemic. And so what would you say about chronic loneliness in our, in our day and time? Chronic loneliness is a major problem for brain health because one of the major ways in which the brain comes alive is through interpersonal contact. And not just any kind of interpersonal contact. Stressful or angry, um, chronically angry relationships, these actually slow down our neurogenic rate. High stress relationships are not good, but no relationships are also not good. 
Chronic loneliness is um, a better predictor of depression and heart disease than smoking. Um, so wow, that's a ma- that's major, major. It's really major. That's right. So that's right. And psychotherapy is hugely helpful. So there are common neural mechanisms behind anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. But there are very different psychological processes behind those three things. So although there is a common healthy brain diet, then there's a chapter on anxiety, a chapter on depression, a chapter on cognitive decline that goes into the psychological dimensions of this, which are very different for each one of these. You know, I was thinking today as I was preparing for this interview and thinking about uh, chronic loneliness and in the pandemic, and I was thinking about those people. It makes people do more online stuff, and they're you know doing the internet. And I'm thinking that people are more susceptible to, let's say, conspiracy. Ideas, yes, yes, because they're just kind of roaming the internet, and then that kind of feels like, oh, here's a group, and then they start belonging to a group. It, it, I'm, I'm just not. I'm wondering if, for myself, if there is any correlation between those people that are accepting conspiracy theories, and and what's going on in the world today. I think there is. I think that since the brain is under assault in so many ways. And most everybody is suffering from some degree of what I'm calling weakened brain syndrome, that when the brain gets weaker like this and anxiety increases, we are more susceptible to conspiracy theories. Because it's like at some level we know something is wrong. We feel anxiety because, wait, something's not right here, but the brain doesn't know what it is. Like, we don't know about glyphosate, or we don't know about the small particles and smog that are damaging the brain. Or we, it's like all of these things, we don't know what's going on, but we know something is wrong. And that feeling of, uh-oh, this feeling of alarm, of threat, I think makes people much more susceptible to conspiracy theories. Like, okay, that, that's a way of, I can, I can hook my anxiety onto something like that. There's an evil conspiracy out there that's out to get us. That's what's happening. So my own sense is that this part of the paranoia that is so rampant in political um, discourse these days actually comes out of this brain dysfunction that is so rampant. It makes sense to me, and I, I often hear on some of the news programs people wondering what's going on in this this idea really makes sense to me as to what it, what is going on and i i just i know that you do this whole brain approach cuz you say the emotional the physical the mental and the spiritual and and the good news is that the brain has great capacity for growth and healing so um, give us your best advice if, if we're going to go for something right now. What is your best advice? Is it the diet we're doing, adding supplements? Or what, what is your best advice right now? Well, again, on every single level, but just on the physical level, eating organically would be the first big step. 
taking omega-3s, and then taking, I have like a list of the top, what I think of as the top 10 supplements. I think that most people could really benefit from that. And then really looking at your emotional life, looking at your mental life, the mental stimulation, looking at are you really nourishing your spiritual life, that we need to be nourished on all four of these levels. And I know that you you talk about having a life of meaning is really important. That's right. That's right. That I put that under the spiritual level. That the current crisis in meaning that many people feel has is it, that in itself becomes stressful and anxiety producing, and that kind of existential angst and lostness and meaninglessness. That just leads to a kind of superficial outer life of just satisfying the senses or numbing the senses and leads us further and further away from our deeper center inside. So meaning, spiritual practice, do your meditation, uh, take your supplements. And as I say in the book, you, you, you list all of these. So if people pick up the book, they, they can just see these great lists. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, you also talk about the dark night of the soul, and we all have had moments of that. And so that it's that idea of relating to our, our lives as a journey and, and being curious, and, and it's awesome, and like to do whatever we can to keep our brains and our guts healthy. And especially in these stressful times, they, they come on us uh, in big ways. So, uh, as you say, depression is, is chronic right now. And you also describe uh, depression as a chronic inhibition, as, as a kind of shrinking, just like our brains shrink, our lives shrink. That's right. That's right. There's many different causes of depression psychologically and chronic inhibition is one of the major ones. The sense in which just holding back, holding back, and without the life energies coming forth into the world, of course we're going to be depressed after a while. That's right. When we retract from the world and pull in like that, our life energy has to go somewhere. And so it goes inside and, and we get depressed if it doesn't have a chance to come out into the world. Yes. And then, then our life energy is actually attacking us in some ways. That's right. That's right. It, it, it's it's pushing us down. And in fact, you, we've seen people, friends who have been depressed. That you can see it in their whole body posture. And I've heard that that even if you're feeling badly, if you just smile, <laughs> it changes our physiology. Uh, um, Brand, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on, on New Dimensions. You've given us so much food for thought and body and soul. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Brandt Courtright, and he's the author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, BrantCourtright.com. Com. And he spells his name B-R-A-N-T-C-O-R-T-R-I-G-H-T, BrantCourtright.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3722. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.